Why would you have to pray that certain days be shortened if they're foreordained that they happen? Have you all thought about that kind of stuff before? Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. I um, want to share with you a story really quickly that I learned in Israel. I think about my children with this every day. And this, is, this will kind of form our thoughts on what we're going to talk about this morning. This woman named Rebecca Bremer, uh, we called her Becky, had grown up the daughter of a Bible prophecy expert. Uh, you can get Dr. Bremer's books on Bible prophecy and on eschatology and most theological libraries. You can still order them online everywhere. Really well respected. Uh, I don't happen to agree with him, but I can tell that the man was a man of God based on his fruit and his life. I can see his children, see how they love the Lord. I can see godly characteristics there. One of the things that he did with his daughters, because he had a love for the Jews, was when they moved to Israel, he got a newspaper article about some 30-some-odd Soviet Jews that were imprisoned in Russia. They were imprisoned in Russia because of a political voice about wanting to return to Israel, and Russia had not allowed that at the time. Now, we live in a day where 1.2 million Jews have returned from Russia to to Israel, just as God's word said it would happen. He would speak to the north, give them up, and the north would give them up. And it's happening. Well, they lived in a day when that had not yet happened. So he gave his daughters a Star of David with a name on it. And each Star of David had the name of one of these men that was in prison. And he said, God hears your prayer. And they wanted to know, well, if God cares about these people, if God wants them released, why do we have to pray? And he began to teach them through this. Now, he gave them stars of David when they were about Judah's age, and they, they would pray. They'd pray every night when they saw the star of David for the release from prison of these people. Now, Becky was very uh, honest. She said a few days went by, and she stopped praying. And her father would ask her, and she'd say, Oh, yeah, 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 I'm praying. And she'd pray occasionally. She said, but this, this word settled in her sister's heart in a different way. She began to go and get Becky's star along with hers and some other siblings and she would pray for them. She set them on her dresser and she'd look at those. I don't mean like a rosary. I don't mean she's touching these and, and that this is some kind of spiritual object. I mean it was a visual reminder that there were people just like these stars seated in a prison that God wanted released. Her birthday comes around. Her father asks what she wants for her birthday. She says, for God to hear my prayer. He says, baby, God's hearing your prayer. He's working on your behalf. You just stick in there. I think it was her 16th birthday, front page of the Israeli newspapers, six people released from a Russian prison. All six were the names on her stars. That formed, yeah, it makes me want to cry. That formed an experience in her. When this woman talked about prayer for Israel, she knew what she was talking about. And this was her sister's testimony, not hers. She said, I had the experience of standing there realizing I could have participated in that and it wasn't important to me. Well, if it was God's will to release them, why did this girl have to pray? That's, that's a question. Turn with me to Genesis 20. And uh, I want to share with you a scripture about our father Abraham. In Genesis 20... And those of you who just walked in our topics, why do we have to pray if it's God's will? I mean, if it's God's will, why, why is it necessary to pray? In Genesis 20, we see 
uh, a scenario where Abimelech, a king in the Philistine uh, regime, has been deceived by Abraham. He said Abraham was in an area where he was worried about his wife, her beauty, causing Abraham a problem. This is not our patriarch's most shining hour. You'll find that when you study most men in the Bible, even if they do great things for God, he allows their weakness to be shown too. And he allows their weakness to be shown so that you are not discouraged as if these were some kind of spiritual icons that you could never relate to. They're just like us. We're going to start in Genesis 20, verse 1. It says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Well, I wish everybody had that kind of revelation. You know, in our movies, in, uh, in our society, you know, do you know what a, a wedding ring is supposed to be, by the way? I digress here. You know, those of you that have them, that wedding ring is an unbroken symbol, a circle, meaning it's infinity. It goes on forever of a covenant. This is the sign of a covenant. And what it's supposed, the reason you wear it, and you wear it on your hands where everybody sees it, is for anybody that sees you anywhere to go, wow, David, Jennifer, Matthew, whoever it is, is in covenant. They're off limits. Because that's a sign that God himself put them together with somebody. The reason we started making them with precious stones and stuff, it's a precious covenant. And in the darkest of places, a little bit of light on these precious metals sparkles out and you can see it. That was designed so that nobody would get confused and go after somebody who was in covenant. Well, we've lost that, haven't we? Okay, so this guy has a revelation. I mean, he has a dream. And God says, man, you are as good as dead. How would you like God to say that to you? Now, Abimelech had not gone near her. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You'll figure out that that doesn't mean he was not in proximity to her. It means that they had not consummated any physical actions. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. <laughs> Wait a second here. First off, God tells him, you are as good as dead. And what does he say? Will you destroy an innocent nation? God wasn't just talking about destroying him. You find out if you read this, a king's, consequence, a king's actions uh, bring judgment on an entire nation. And he said, well, I hadn't gone near her. He hadn't gone near her because God hadn't let him go near her. In fact, if you read a little further, you find out God shut the womb of every woman there so that nobody could bear children. And he did something that kept Abimelech from violating this woman. God did that so that there would not be sin that occurred there because of Abraham's weakness. But listen to what the remedy is here. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. 
But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours, that's all of his kingdom, will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have, you, how have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, You know, most times when you get in trouble in your life, it's when you're talking to yourself rather than God. You know, he said, I said to myself, when you begin to reason within your own thoughts rather than reasoning it out with God, you almost always get into trouble. There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Let me ask you something. Does that seem accurate to you? There is no fear of God in this place? Abimelech had a dream. He acted on it immediately. All of the officials were immediately afraid. So is it true there was no fear of God in this place? Most of the time, the thoughts that are rolling around in your head are not the right thoughts. Most of the time, when you're talking with yourself, you're debating how to handle something, you're weighing all of the consequences and all, it has more to do with your fears than it does God's truth. See, if Abraham had spent some time with God about this, he never would have gotten in this position. But he didn't. He said to himself, and he talked to himself about it. And so his perceptions were not real. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. Isn't it great how we justify our sins? You know, yeah, it wasn't really a lie. I mean, it's kind of true. And when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere I go, say, he's my brother. If you really love me, sweetie, you'll sin. <laughs> how about that? Then Abimelech brought sheep, cattle, male, female slaves, blah, 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 blah. And God, God lifted this, this problem. But when God spoke to Abimelech, what did he tell him to do? Return the man's wife and... Ask him to pray for you. Why? God's talking to him right then, right now. Why is it necessary that Abraham pray? That's kind of odd, isn't it? If you were having a conversation with God about something that had gone wrong and somebody had sinned against you, and then uh, God said, look, I want you to go and I want you to repent to them, even though they sinned against you, and I want uh, you to allow him to pray for you, and then I will heal you. Wouldn't you kind of scratch your head and wonder why? I thought it was kind of odd myself. Turn with me to Job 42. To find the book of Job, you can pretty well take the middle of your Bible and uh, you'll, you'll just about be there. If, if you end up in Psalms, hang a left. In Job 42, uh, which starts on page 601 and moves to page 602 in the Thompson chain, we see a really similar event. And I'm bringing this up to get to a point. God was already talking with Abimelech. God already had in mind what he wanted to happen, and it was necessary that Abraham pray for it to happen. Jesus has already told us in Matthew 24, these things are going to happen. They will be the signs of the ends of the age, but pray that the days be shortened. You know, in other words, there are determined events, and yet God is saying, pray. In Job 42, starting in verse 7, you all remember the story of Job? Job's being persecuted, uh, not per afflicted, it would be a better word. His friends that are supposed to be righteous give him all kind of advice, most of which is not good, and most of which just says that only bad things happen to people who do bad things. I mean, that's basically what he said. Uh, the whole book of Job being, 
the point of the book of Job being God has the right to bring whatever he wants to in and out of your life for his glory. I mean, that's the point of the book of Job. Well, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. The guy is talking with God and God's telling him again. This is a second time, just like the one with Abraham. You need to go to Job and Job will pray for you. I will accept his prayer and then things will be made right for you. So this is a second example of a time where God's will is to set things right here. For Eliphaz to get it right, for Abimelech to get it right, God had a will in the scenario. And yet somebody had to pray for it to happen. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Have you ever wondered, Elijah is usually the guy that we talk about as being the powerful man in prayer. Because James speaks of him, says, Elijah was a man. He was a man like you and me, and yet at his word, the heavens shut up. And at his word, the heavens gave forth rain again. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, the King James Bible says. And that's usually the guy that we lift up to talk about how powerful prayer can be. I mean, do y'all follow me there? The other night, my dad was coming home from uh, work. His windshield wipers were not working. He's kind of worried about that. We are desiring to stay out of any traffic accidents, anything like that. So without thought, because of uh, what Elijah has already done in his life and what the Word says about us being able to pray like Elijah, my two sons, my wife, I, my brother-in-law, all join hands and pray. And we don't think anything strange about praying that it not rain between there and here so they didn't get home without windshield wipers working. Because it's commonplace in Christianity. It should be, right? Well, turn to 1 Kings 8. If you start in uh, Genesis, you will go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, then 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings 8, which in the Thompson chain is on page 380. In the 35th verse, you hear this. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, the people, Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. God was teaching about this land. And what did he say would happen? When your people have sinned, what are you supposed to do? The heavens are going to be shut up. He said, pray, and then the heavens will give rain. So where is it you think Elijah got the idea to shut up the heavens? Elijah comes along in 1 Kings 18, or 1 Kings 17, and there's a famine in the land and Elijah prays that the, the land get no rain because the leadership in Israel was wicked. In 1 Kings 18, some seven years later, he, you remember this? Well, go ahead and turn there. This is 1 Kings 18, so you'll be making a right. I forget sometimes that not all of these stories may be as familiar to you. Uh, 
some are familiar and some aren't as familiar. In 1 Kings 18, you all remember this? Mount Carmel. He tells all of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. We're having a, a revival of, speak, of sorts, a chance for people to repent. Well, Israel sides with God. All of the prophets to Baal get put to death. There is a change in Israel. The heavens had been shut up because their uh, sin was all over the land. And Elijah prayed, based on 1 Kings 8, that God would shut up the heavens because that's what's supposed to happen when Israel's in sin. Now Israel's repented. What does 1 Kings 8 say is going to happen? 1 Kings 8 said, um, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, the people of Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people as an inheritance. Here's where I'm going with this. Elijah didn't just decide, I don't like them, I think I'm going to stop up the heavens. I like them today, I'm going to go ahead and pray that it rain. He didn't just have supernatural faith within himself to do this based on nothing. When we looked at Abraham with Abimelech, Abraham knew that he could pray and this would be removed from Abimelech. Why? Because God had told Abimelech, this is how it will happen. Job prays for his friend Eliphaz. How did Job know that it would happen? Because God had told Eliphaz, go to Job, he'll pray, and this will happen. Elijah, probably the greatest example of prayer in all of the Bible, prayed for the heavens to be stopped up and knew that it would happen because in about eight places in the Word prior to Elijah's life, God said, when they sin, I will shut up the heavens. Elijah was simply speaking God's will on earth as it was already recognized in heaven. Job was simply speaking God's will on earth as it was already recognized in heaven. So was Abraham. Y'all see that pattern that I'm trying to get you to see? Y'all follow me? So, when we say, why on earth if it's God's will, why on earth if He wants to do something, do you have to pray? If, if it's preordained, why do you have to pray? We still hadn't answered that. We know that prayer that works is prayer that comes from God's will in heaven being done on earth. We know that. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. But why? Turn with me to Revelation 8. In Rebecca Bremer's life, her father came and gave her those stars. Her sister took it seriously and prayed that God's will would be done regarding those stars that represented the Jewish men. She prayed until she saw it done. Her sister didn't. They were each given a star, just like David's given one, Mandy's given one, took it seriously and the other didn't. Right? It required then the sister who was obedient to take on more stars because of the sister that wasn't obedient. You follow me? Should have been all of them praying for one, but instead only one took it seriously, so she had to pray for all. For some reason, apparently, the way that God's system works is there has to be prayer for things to be done, and if David won't do it, Judah has to. And if Judah won't do it, then it's got to fall to Matthew. Somebody has to take this seriously or it's not done. Revelation 8 gives us a picture of why that might be. 
starting in um, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you remember that Matthew 24 spoke about earthquakes? One of the signs of the times of the end. Jesus told us to pray about those signs of the times of the end. This angel, when he wanted to affect something on earth, took two things. Something from God's altar together with the prayers of the saints. And when he sent it to the earth, it changed things on earth. I want you, when you begin to think about prayer, to start to think in tangible terms. I don't know why. I have no idea why God chose it to be this way. But you see, when God wanted to heal Abimelech, he had to have Abraham pray to do it. When God wanted to heal Eliphaz, he had to have Job pray to do it. When God wanted to shut up the heavens above Israel because his word said, if they sin, I'm not going to send them rain, and then wanted to turn the rain back on again because they had repented and his word said he would do that, he had a man pray to do it. Now we see in Revelation that God takes prayer along with other things in heaven to effect change on the earth. You need to start to think about this in quantifiable terms. God uses this in some way tangibly. Why pray? Because God needs it. Now, we all have the idea God has no need of anything, right? We have the idea that God's all-powerful. He does whatever He wants to do, however He wants to do it. Apparently, there's some more to the story than that. Because throughout the Bible, we see these kind of events. It's kind of like when people say God knows everything, right? You've grown up hearing that. God's omniscient. But then you see Him having to find out things in the Bible. I came down to see for myself. Is it really as bad in Sodom and Gomorrah as they say? You know? Or you see God change His mind like He did with Moses. I was going to kill them all, but because of what you said, Moses, I'm not going to. Your understanding of Him being omniscient begins to change a little bit and you begin to question it. That doesn't lessen God. Not at all. It changes your understanding. See, in my view, God is omniscient. He's omniscient in this way. He has the means to find out anything He wants to know. Okay? When we're talking about God being all-powerful, He is. He's got the power to do anything He wants, but He apparently uses tools to do it. You ever wonder why Jesus healed people sometimes? And sometimes He just prayed and a fever left, right? But other times He took something from the creation. He took mud and spit and made eyeballs. If you're going to do that kind of miracle anyway, why not just pray and the eyeballs appear? He took something from the creation and used it. Well, something from the creation that He uses to affect His will on the earth is apparently our prayer, an expression of our will towards God, expression of our desire to see Him move in a situation. Now, here's what's really unique about this. We see in the Scripture God tells us to pray for certain things, and here's better than this, not to pray for other things. Turn with me to Jeremiah. I don't remember where I left y'all last or I'd tell you where to go. (coughs) 
if you're in Revelation, you need to hang in extreme left. <coughs> Jeremiah 7 is where we're going. It's on page 846. You remember, I'm telling you that the reason that Elijah knew to pray to shut up the heavens, the reason that he knew to pray that God would send rain and then he would, was because God's Word had already said that. Jesus, when they asked him, uh, Lord, well, how should we pray? He said, we'll pray that God's will is done on earth the same way that it's done in heaven. When we're talking about how to have powerful prayer in our lives, you need to discern based on the Word and what God's sharing with you what needs to happen in your life. There are some things this Word's so clear about you don't have to question. Uh, should you be baptized? Word's very clear about it. Yeah, you should be baptized. Should you... Um, Throw away your idols. <laughs> yeah, if you got idols, throw them away. I mean, there are some that are way beyond any need of discernment, and there are other areas that need discernment. Uh, does God in general want good things for you? Absolutely. The Word's very clear about it. Does He want all of us to be millionaires? The Word's not very clear about that. You know? The Bible speaks about wealth in a good fashion and wealth in a horribly negative fashion at other times. It seems to be a gift that some people can handle, and some can't. So before you prayed for a million dollars, you would need to discern what God's will was for your life if you wanted to have that as powerful prayer. Y'all following me with this? Okay. In Jeremiah 7, we see Israel in a horrible place. This is uh, before Elijah stand on the mountain. This is uh, about 580 B.C., so somewhere around, around 580 B.C. And... Uh, Israel has pretty well rejected God. And we are going to start in verse 9. I think verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe to do all the detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. By the way, when you hear that word den of robbers, does that strike anything to remembrance for you? Yeah. So when he called it a den of robbers and thieves, what's he really saying? You guys are the same kind of people that Jeremiah spoke about that would have idols, that would uh, hate, murder, steal, and then come stand before my name as if I weren't watching. That's exactly what he was saying, but that's off subject. Verse 12. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made my dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all of these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will... I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me for I will not listen to you. You ever heard somebody say, pray for me? Right? We all say it. Have you ever in your wildest imagination dreamed that God may not want you to pray for somebody? No, I hadn't either. I mean, that is the strangest, most obscure thought I could think of. Our prayer, though, when you think about it in this way, our prayer is supposed to be 
an expression of the will of God in heaven being voiced on earth. When you think about prayer as something more than just conversation, which is what we've been taught it is, it's conversation with God, but prayer is supposed to be an expression of God's will on earth, then there are some things you just can't pray for in there. Right? If it's not God's will for somebody's life, you're wasting your time to pray for it. Why was God telling Jeremiah not to pray for Israel? Is it because he didn't love Israel? No, he did. He loved Israel very much. Was it because he wanted bad things for Israel? Now, y'all got to answer me or I'm going to cry and go home. Was it because he wanted bad things for Israel? Are you sure? God had said in His Word, if you do this and this and this, this will happen. We were at the time when Israel was going to reap what they had sown. They had refused to do what God said to do, although He had appeared to them, although He had sent prophets to them, although He had done all of these things. So God told His prophet, don't you even pray for them, I won't listen, because they're going into captivity in Babylon. See, there are times that... We see in the Word, God wants something positive to happen, and He says, go to Abraham, He'll pray for you. Go to Job, He'll pray for you. Uh, Go to Elijah, He'll pray and there'll be rain. We see those examples. Here's an example of a time where God did not want something good to happen, and He told His man on earth, who's supposed to be expressing His will when He prays, don't you dare pray for them. Don't do it. If you do, I'm going to have to ignore it, Jeremiah. I'm warning you in advance. He tells Jeremiah this like five times in the book of Jeremiah. And it's funny because Jeremiah starts to preface his statements to the people. He says, and God says, this is going to happen. By the way, he told me, don't even pray for you about this. It's going to happen. Because it was usually, usually when God proclaimed a judgment, there would be a chance for repentance and the people would come and the prophet would pray and it would change. God told him in advance, no. Do not pray for them. Our prayer, and what I'm trying to get across in our minds from Revelation 8 and it being balled up in a censer and thrown to the earth to effect change, is an expression of God's will. It's almost as if He is ordering it in heaven and we are carrying it out in some way on earth. We've always thought about it a different way though, haven't we? We place the order here and He carries it out there. This is all put into context with Jesus' words in John. And we're studying John every Wednesday night, so y'all will hear this a million times. I only do and I only say that which I see my Father do and that which I hear my Father say in heaven. That was Jesus' statement about his life. If Jesus said, David, your sins are forgiven, and you wonder, how can he do that? He's a guy. It's because he knew that the Father was saying David's sins were forgiven and he was voicing that. If we take that attitude towards our prayer, if you begin to pray for that which God has shown you is his will, you see results 100% of the time. You remember James taught on this subject. He said, you don't have because you don't ask. And then when you ask, you ask with the wrong motive that you might spend what you get on yourselves. Or use what you get on yourselves. Selfish, greed. That's not God's will. So, of course, you didn't get it. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you have faith as small as a mustard seed. If you trust God enough to hear His Word and to apply it in your life, you can speak to a mountain and say, be removed into the sea, and it will. If it's God's will for it to occur. It was never God's desire that we uh, decide to build roads in His name by casting mountains into the sea. 
But if a mountain stands between you and the will of God on earth and you pray and you stand fast proclaiming God's Word through your prayer to people, it happens. So you wonder, I pray and I don't see anything happen. Here are the two possible categories we're going to get into and this is where all of this is going. Either it's not God's will or you've given up too soon. Because God's will will be done on earth 100% of the time eventually. We just don't see it yet. You pray until you do see it. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, pray that these days will be shortened. We know that they will be, but somebody has to pray. And if you're the disobedient sister who doesn't pray, God has to raise up an obedient sister who will, just like in Rebecca Brimmer's house. Uh, in Jeremiah 7, we saw an a example of a time God didn't want, didn't want a prophet to pray for somebody. Look at Daniel 9. From Jeremiah, you can hang a right to Daniel. You will go through Ezekiel. Now, what was the subject that Jeremiah was not supposed to be praying about? Don't pray for Israel's welfare regarding this Babylonian captivity. Don't pray they don't go into it because they are going to go into it. So starting way back in Genesis, to recap some of this for you, we have an instance where God wants to heal a man named Abimelech and while God's talking to him, he says, you've got to go to Abraham. He'll pray for you and then you'll get healed. Then we have another instance where these people have wronged Job and God's speaking with them and say, hey, if you want to get healed from this, you need to go to Job and Job will pray for you and you'll get healed. God wants to do something to someone on the earth. He uses men. If He wants to split the Red Sea. He uses Moses to do it. If He wants to speak His salvation to somebody, He uses a man to do it. When He wants His will to be done on earth, it is required that men on earth pray about His will being done. And when that's offered up to God, He takes it in some kind of way, and Revelation just shows us a picture of it. I'm not telling you mechanically this is how it always works. He takes it some kind of way and sends it back to the earth to affect His will. You saw that. You saw things that were foreordained about earthquakes, peals of lightning, thunder, all of those things having to be combined with prayer and something from the altar to happen on the earth. Now, in Daniel 9, something happens. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word the Lord had given Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. How did Elijah know to shut up the heavens? The Word said so. How did Elijah know to release the rain from heaven? The Word said so. Now, the Lord had to make that real to him, but it did. How did Abraham know he could heal Abimelech? God had said so. How did Job know he could heal Eliphaz? God said so. Why did Jeremiah not pray for the people to be relieved of the punishment of God? God told him not to. Now, Daniel is known... I mean, we have this prayer when we have our national day of prayer... We quote these things. If my people will humble themselves, if they will call upon my name and repent, then I will again restore their nation. And all of these things as a model for prayer. That's based on Daniel's life because that's what Daniel is going to do right here. He's going to repent for his whole nation and he's going to pray for them. But why is he doing it? Because he has just read the book of Jeremiah and he's determined from Jeremiah's writings that Israel was only supposed to be in Babylon's captivity for 70 years. 
And the clock was ticking. He knew he was approaching 70 years. He said, wow, I need to pray that this be done. Now, why would you have to, though? That's our whole subject this morning. That didn't make any sense. If God said, I'm sending you to Babylon and you're going to be there 70 years, then I'm going to bring you out and you'll rebuild the ruined cities. Why does Daniel have to pray that it happened? Because apparently God needs, in some tangible way, He uses Daniel's prayer to cause that to come about. Otherwise, why would He do it and why would the Word record it? This is now about the sixth example we see of God's will being expressed and then somebody having to actually pray that it be done before it is done. It's not enough for God to say, David, I want you to be a missionary in Africa and thousands will be saved. That's an expression of His will, right? But if David doesn't actually go be the missionary in Africa, it doesn't get done, does it? See, all of these things that God says will happen, it's required that men do certain things for them to happen. And like in Rebecca Bremer's life, if one person doesn't do it, he has to raise up somebody else that will. Why we, do you remember the parable Jesus taught about the two brothers? One who said, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll go do it. Or yes, Father, I'll go do it. And then he didn't do it. And the other said, no, Father, I won't. But then he changed his mind and did it and said, which one was the obedient brother? Which one was pleasing to the Father? The church is the same way. We're either going to pray and see God's will done. We're either going to move in that direction in our life or we're going to be the disobedient brother. But God's... Here, here's what's important. Last week we taught on fellowship, right? Taught about why you need to be here. It's not just so that you can get something from me or something from God. It's because each one of us needs something from each other. And the whole emphasis was if somebody's gone, everybody else hurts. Everybody else feels it. There is a lack. Well, here's what you're finding out about God's kingdom. God has assignments for each one of us. And when we don't do it, it doesn't get done or somebody else has to do it. Now, if you're in a work situation, all right, let's think about God's kingdom as a work situation. If Mandy is working and somebody else does not do their job requirement, it still has to get done. If it doesn't, nobody gets paid. It just meant Mandy would have to do it. You like that example, don't you, Mandy? Yeah. We're in a situation now where our staff's been reduced and some people just don't care about things getting done. The same work's there. It's got to get done. Somebody has to choose to be obedient and do it. And it makes the load heavier. The kingdom of God is no different. We're finding that out. Daniel, out of all the people in Israel, Daniel's the first one that looks at this prophecy and goes, wow, we're only supposed to be here 70 years. The clock's ticking. Lord, I'm praying that we be moved out because it was necessary that the prayer occur. Now, in Daniel, he begins to pray. And uh, verse 3, So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Then you have Daniel's whole prayer. But I want you to pick back up in verse uh, 20. While I was speaking, this is Daniel, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Then Daniel gets insight into two, more than 2,000 years of history. I mean, history we've not yet encountered. 
Now, if you were Daniel and you read, you determined, wow, it's God's will that we eventually leave this place. And then you began to pray. And immediately an angel showed up and said, hey, from the moment that you prayed, I have got the answer. You'd be pretty encouraged. If every time you prayed, if you were praying for somebody's salvation and within an hour an angel shows up and says, hey, you are highly esteemed and I'm here to give you the answer to that. Here's some insight into the situation. Your prayer life would never struggle, would it? I mean, if every time you prayed, an angel named Gabriel showed up and said, Bobby, I heard your request for no rain, and I want you to know you're highly esteemed. I'm here. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, here's what you have to do, though. You have to contrast this with the next time Daniel began to pray. Turn your page. On the uh, 10th chapter... We see another time Daniel began to pray. See, Daniel got this message from Gabriel and he was distressed because it involved more painful heartache for Israel. What's he praying for, by the way? What was Daniel praying for when Gabriel showed up? Release from painful heartache, right? What, what did the angel tell him, though? This is the 77's vision. He says, oh, so things are going to get good. You're going to leave here. But then there's going to be this whole Antichrist fellow and there's going to be an abomination that causes desolation. It's going to be a hard time in Israel. Well, of course Daniel was distressed. If you're praying for salvation for somebody and what you hear is, ooh, their life is going to get really, really rough. That hurts, doesn't it? You're praying for something good, but God's telling you, it's going to get good, but it's got to get bad first. That's exactly the situation Daniel's in. So he starts to pray again. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. You know, Daniel... Daniel's a Hebraic name, and it means something glorious. I can't remember what it means today. Belteshazzar is a Babylonian name, and it is, um, speaks of a Babylonian god. Don't be surprised if the thing that God wants you to be, if the thing that you really are, that he's called you to be, is not how everybody sees you. We see him as Daniel. We call him as Daniel, the wisest man in the Bible. Daniel, the awesome revelator. Daniel, the awesome guy. The people in his day called him Belteshazzar, a name after a foreign god. You know, if, if they do that to Daniel, I figure it's okay if they see us as regular. Cassidy said after hearing Wednesday's message about no, a prophet in his hometown is always without honor, familiarity always breeds contempt. You know, God sees you in a different light than the people around you do. Sometimes that means he sees negative things in a way that they don't. But more often than not, it means he sees potential that nobody else sees. And you need to remember that. Uh, It was a message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms, legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such a terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at the great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. 
Then I heard him speaking and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Get this. The first time Daniel starts to pray, he Reading Jeremiah, he says, wow, we're only supposed to be here 70 years. Lord, I'm praying for the people. We're repenting. Lord, we believe we're supposed to be delivered from this place after 70 years. And the angel shows up right away. Gabriel shows up and says, you're highly esteemed. I'm here to tell you, this is what's going to happen. The next time, he is mourning, fasting, eating no meat, drinking no wine for 21 days. How do you think he felt on day 20? See, it is easy when you see the response to your prayer immediately. And Daniel did the first time, but the next time, how would you feel on day 20? You're not eating, you're not drinking, because you're devoting yourself to prayer. And you have seen and heard nothing. Nada. Zero. No response. Would you give up? Especially if every time you had prayed before, an angel showed up on the first day, right? By day two, he's a little late. By day three, he's extraordinarily late. By day 20, he ain't coming, right? But Daniel didn't give up. There was a persistence there. Why was the angel delayed? Was it because he didn't get the message for 20 days? He said, from the moment you set your mind to gain understanding, your words were heard and I came in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time to come. It goes on to give him more revelation, but here, here's the thing. We are supposed to be praying for God's will that is perfectly obeyed in the heavens, at least in the third heaven, to be done on earth. We are supposed to be praying that, voicing it, praying with others. When you say amen with somebody, when David and I pray, we grab hands and I say amen, and that that literal translation is so be it unto God, what I'm saying is I agree that this is God's will on earth the same way as if it were expressed in heaven. This is how you bind on earth and it's bound in heaven. You loose on earth and it's loosed in heaven. You are speaking God's will when you pray. But when it doesn't happen instantaneously, what do you begin to do? Was it God's will? If it was God's will, wouldn't it be done? I mean, after all, if God wanted this done, wouldn't it be done? And don't you pray like that. Lord, if you want this to be done, then do it. How on earth would that be helpful? (coughs) Lord, if you want this to be done, then do it. Lord, if you want him healed, then heal him. Lord, if you want me to be baptized in your Holy Ghost, then baptize me in your Holy Ghost. How is that an expression of God's will? That's an expression of nothing but indecision, a lack of faith, no trust, no vision. Apparently what God uses is people praying that His will is done on earth and expressing that will. I want Eliphaz to be healed. Well, go to Job. Job will pray for you to be healed and then you'll be healed. I want Abimelech to be healed. Well, go to Abraham. He will pray for you and then you will be healed. 
I want the heaven shut up. Well, I'll tell uh, Elijah, he will pray and it will happen. I want them open. Well, Elijah will pray and then it will happen. It's necessary for us to pray the will of God for the will of God to happen. But where the church begins to break down is in indecision about if it's the will of God when we don't see it happen right away. What Daniel should be teaching us, we're going to close after we read another parable. What Daniel should be teaching us is just because it's resisted, just because you don't see it right away, doesn't mean it's not God's will. And for God's will to be done, the people have to pray it and have to stand fast for it to be done. God's more than willing to let something stretch out a long, long, long time to be a bigger miracle when it comes about. For 2,000 years, He let Israel be scattered all over the globe. Even though He said, I will bring them back and every person will be in Israel. For 2,000 years, it looked like a failure. There wasn't even a nation there. But Isaiah 62 said, All you who call upon the name of the Lord, remember Jerusalem and give Him no rest till He establishes her as the praise of all the earth. And we're living in a day where it's happening. But people have to pray for it to happen. Daniel prayed until he broke through. You find out that for the angel to break through, to bring Daniel the word that Daniel was praying for, what had to happen? Another angel had to come and help him. Are you beginning to get some semblance of a structure in the heavenly realm of warring angels that are clashing? One was there with two and couldn't break through. As Daniel prayed, God sent a second so that he could break through. The close of this chapter, he says, look, when I leave here, I've got to go face those two guys plus a third that is the next kingdom that's coming. And there's none of the angels that stand with me except Michael. (laughs) That's what he said. He's giving you the idea there is a fight that is coming and there are only a few that are standing in this fight. Now, we can teach about the heavenlies. We'll teach about spiritual authorities, uh, principalities over regions, all of those things. But what you need to know is when you pray, angels are moving. And if you're being resisted, if you don't see it happening right away, doesn't mean it's not God's will. You don't need to go dig up and doubt what you've sown in faith. That's not what God's trying to teach. You pray until it happens. Maybe you need to pray until more angels join the fight. Now, I don't know why your prayer affects angels. I don't know why angels need to use your prayer to cause God's will to happen on the earth. But you saw in Revelation 8.3, they very much do use them. If the angel's job is to cause earthquakes... He had to take fire from the altar, put it in a censer with your prayer, and then he put it on the earth and it happened. God's trying to teach us something there. Turn to Luke 18. We'll close with this. I think. I lied to you all every now and then about that. 18. Usually you only find this kind of frankness from John. You usually only find the kind of statement in the book of John that teaches a parable or something, and then John will tell you in parentheses, I said this because. (coughs) But in Luke, we see really frank thought here, and I appreciate it. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Does it get any clearer than that? Do you have to wonder what this parable is for or about? Do we need to go to a seminary and have them break it down for us into Greek and argue about whether it's written in Greek or Hebrew and debate that for hours? No. Luke told us point blank, here's the reason for the parable. Jesus told them this and he told them this so that they would learn to pray and not give up. 
Now what's important is Luke was not there when the parable was told. Luke was simply a compiler of facts for the purpose of giving a thorough account of Jesus' life. He was a historian. So Luke was writing this way after the fact and he could look at the parable that Jesus gave, how the apostles received it, what they had thought about it, and say, the reason Jesus told them this parable was so that they would pray and not give up. What does that tell you was a problem? People were giving up before they saw God's will done on earth in their prayer. So what is the parable? He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Is God an unjust judge? Not at all. Are you a widow crying for mercy? No. That's totally beside the point. He's saying this widow who had no other means of recourse, recourse, and had no other way to solve the problem, went daily to the judge. And the judge was a wicked guy. He, he didn't care about her, didn't care about anybody else, didn't care about God. But because of her persistence, he eventually gave in to her. So how much more you, if you see God as your only means of recourse, if you take it to Him persistently, day after day, will He not work to see that you get what He's after? Now, what God is after is justice on the earth. We know that. I mean, that among many other things. Your prayer is in the will of God, but you still have to be persistent praying every day and not giving up until you get it. Now, some have confused this. And so Jesus says, don't be like the pagans babbling on thinking that you'll be heard for your many words. It's not your impressive prayer. It's not your repetition of a prayer that gets it heard. It is your intent desire to see God's will done on earth and your continual communication with God about it. Not the number, no, not 343 Hail Marys or Novenas and oh, 344 was the magic number. No, it's the idea of, I believe this is your will, Lord. I will stand fast as a testimony to all around me that this is your will until I see it come about. And then every day you remind yourself and you remind Him about it. I don't know what everybody's praying for. I know some things that you should be praying for in your lives. It's different for each one of you. If you believe that it's God's will, that's the first test. Secondly, then you stand fast until you see it come about. If you don't see it right away, if Gabriel doesn't show up like in Daniel's first prayer right away and say, hey, boy, you're highly esteemed. I'm glad and I'm here. If you don't see that, then assume that it's being resisted by the enemy and fight. Don't give up until you get it. That, there's a whole lot to be said for just that attitude in the kingdom. But the reality is, what we do in the charismatic church is as bad as any other, is we say, God told me. And then you pray, and when you don't see it happen that day, the next day God told you something totally different. God's not a windshield wiper. He doesn't change His mind. He's spoken His will, now we need to stand on it. But when things get hard, 
When you feel resistance, when it's tough all around us, all of a sudden we think, did God really say? Now, who am I quoting? Did God really say? Who said that? First time that appears in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis 3. The serpent speaking to the woman. Did God really say, if you eat it, you'll die? Next time you have that thought, did God really say? Now you know where it comes from. You know exactly where it comes from. You can identify the snake. When God speaks to you, stand on it. Don't give it up if you have to. Write it down. And some things He doesn't have to speak. You see it in His Word. He desires this will be done on earth, but it requires your prayer to do it. It requires your obedience to do it. Y'all with me? We'll stand up and let's pray.